Well, today we pick up our Bibles and continue a study that we actually started five years ago uh, through the book of Genesis. If you're new to fellowship, you know, what, what we do when we teach primarily is we're going to teach through books of the Bible. So we pick a book and we're going verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and chapter by chapter. And it was five years ago that we picked up Genesis and uh, it was actually six because five years ago we came to the end of Genesis chapter uh, 11, right at the beginning of 12, having walked through those chapters together for almost, almost a year. And today we're going to pick that study back up and we're going to take Genesis 12 through 25. Y'all, it's going to take us about 26, 27 weeks that we will be walking through this uh, section of our Bibles, and it's focused, of course, upon the life of Abraham. Now, my, my objective this morning, a little bit different even than verse-by-verse exposition, is preparatory. I'm going to take some time to prepare us, as Rob will come next week and open up to Genesis 12, and to go verse-by-verse verse from chapter 12 all the way through 25. I'm going to prepare us today by giving us a broad overview now, I do that because anytime we pick up our Bibles and we're going to look at Abraham, there's a context for his life. I mean, what came before it? You know, where is it going? And so uh, we're going to look at the context of Genesis 1 through 11. One of the things that we do when we begin a study, of course, as well, is to put ourselves in the minds of the original audience. Uh, these words were not written originally to us, but to a specific audience. And when we understand that audience, we're then able to interpret it correctly and bring it over and apply it to our own day. The original audience for the book of Genesis is two to three million Hebrew people that make up the nation of Israel. You've got to remember that they have been in slavery for 400 years. And then they come out of that slavery and they're 40 years in the wilderness. And you think about us, Americans, our nation, how old? Just over 200. They were 400 years in slavery. You think that doesn't mark them? Oh, it does. That's why Moses wrote these first five books. He probably wrote these books during the wilderness years, uh, specifically Genesis um, in, as that was coming to an end about 1400 B.C. Um, more specifically, I want to get even more specific on the audience. He's writing to a group of people who are facing perhaps their greatest challenge uh, in their lives. Uh, these people, get this in your mind's eye, and you're going to have to kind of know your story in the Old Testament. Get this in your mind's eye. They are standing on the edge of the Jordan River. It's flooded at flood stage. And they are preparing to cross that flooded river and go into that land that holds giants and take it, for God had promised it to them. And they're standing here for the second time. You recall the story when they came out of Egypt, he put them on the edge of that water and said, go over and take it. And they didn't. Do you remember this story? And uh, Moses sends in spies, 12 spies, 10 of them come back with a bad report. It wasn't a bad report because they, you know, because they said there are giants in the land. That's a fact. It doesn't make it bad. But what made it a bad report was they said there are giants in the land. In other words, they, I'm going to put it in these terms. They, they looked at the problem, but they didn't hold on to the promise. 
This is the whole book of Abraham. This is the whole book of Genesis and Abraham's life. Held, they held a, you know, Caleb and Joshua came along and said, yeah, yep, they're huge. God promised. You see that? What enables us to, to hold the problem and the promise? That's the principle that we're going to talk about all through Genesis 12 to 25, the principle of faith. But I want you to know as well, this takes the, the, the story itself and it, and it puts it right in our laps. It brings it from ancient text to present reality. Because I would suggest there's no one in this room, no one, that's not standing on the edge of the Jordan. How do we get across? That's not looking into the land. There are giants. God, how are you going? None of us stand here challenge-free, problem-free. I mean, we all are facing, quote, giants, so to speak. We're all facing those things, circumstances, health, life, finances, whatever it may be, relationships, that we wonder, how, God, how are you going to work that out? And you and I are always invited to hold the problem with the promise and to hold them together in faith. Well, uh, the easiest way to grasp these chapters is to think of chapters 1 through 11 that I'm going to overview today, is to think of them uh, in, in four events. This is not new to, to me or to us at all, but four events that mark Genesis 1 through 11, creation, fall, flood, and then I'm going to change this a little bit, and some people say uh, nations, but I'm going to say creation, fall, flood, and then Babel, Okay. You, are you with me on this? How many of you have been through walk through the Bible? Raise your hand, seriously. You know, it's interesting. Not a whole lot of us, but, you know, this is, I'm going to borrow a little bit from them because when we're studying, oftentimes, even as Tim had us open our hands, you know, it's, it's our, we engage our body. I'm going to ask you to engage your body, actually, in this review. I'm going to ask you to stand. First of all, let's everybody stand. And when you think of the Bible, actually, walk through the Bible goes through the whole Bible like this. We're only going to take the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and I'm going to give you these four events and some motions here that are going to be. I'm not going to forget that. This is what happened. Uh, it goes like this. It goes creation, fall, flood, and then I'm going to say babble. Okay? And now, all of a sudden, you've got, you've got 11 chapters of Genesis locked in your noggin. Okay? I want you to do this with me. Okay? It's creation, fall, flood, Babel. Okay, let's do it one more time. I want you to say it out loud because you're not saying it with me. You've got to say it with me. You know, I'm up here screaming. Y'all are... All right. Creation, fall, flood, babble. Uh, I should videotape this so that you can look at yourselves. Y'all can be seated. But it does, what it does is it goes, okay, I, I get those 11 chapters. There's four events. I'm going to walk through those four events. We're going to make a few observations, a few applications, and then I'm going to grab the one principle that drives us all the way through those chapters and, quite frankly, drives us all the way through the Bible as a whole. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We are at creation. Genesis 1 and 2, actually. But Genesis 1, 1 through 5, note Moses writes, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. One of the deepest questions facing all of humanity is this. Why is there something rather than nothing? Have you, do you ever think about that? Why, why is there something rather than nothing? And the first seven words of the Bible don't argue for God's existence or any of that. It states it as a fact that God alone always has been, spoke, and matter came into being. You see, most scientists and, 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 and you know, many today will warm their hands around the Big Bang Theory for where did it all come from? Where's, you know, why, are, why, why is all this here? Where did it all come from? Well, the Big Bang. And, and you know this, uh, this, this theory that there was, a, there was a Big Bang and the, the, the universe is expanding from that bang. What no one can answer is, where did the thing that banged come from, right? Where did, where did the stuff that exploded, where, where did it come from? They, you, you, they can't answer it. See, the only thing they can say is, well, matter has always existed. Well, no, not according to, to the Bible. No, there was nothing and quite frankly, let's, let's connect this, nothing produces nothing. Out of nothing comes nothing. The Bible says before nothing, there's God who's always been. God speaks and matter comes into being. What does matter look like? Well, there's six days of creation. Of course, we're not going to read all the way through that. Uh, the pinnacle of creation is humanity. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created male and female, three times it says here, in his image, in his likeness. And again, I don't have time in this overview to go into a lot of detail on that. One of the things the text moves toward quickly, though, is there's a sense to which he, in, our, in his likeness means we've actually been created to co-rule with him. To co-rule, clearly, creation, all creeping things, all things in the water, to co-rule creation with God. Genesis 2 is a more detailed account of the creation, and he goes into how he created man, and note how he created woman and the institution of marriage. So important here. Look at verse 21 through 25, chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed it up at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not naked. 
ashamed. I'll tell you, Genesis 1, 2, 3 answers all the questions that we're asking today, doesn't it, about life and why this, why that, marriage, institution of marriage, male, female, all these things. When he says God fashioned the woman, he uses a different word than he used previously for making animals, for making creation. It's not the same word, this word fashioned, and we, we, we get this word in a sense. It is to say that he, he uniquely, specifically shaped and formed woman for man it's like a you know i'm not wearing custom clothes up here but you know if you had a custom suit made they would have they would they would make that suit fit the exact fall of your shoulder the exact shape of your waist it's custom designed and here we get a principle for all who are married in the room that your spouse was uniquely can i say this in god's divine kindness perfectly for you. Some of you are going, I don't know. <laughs> but absolutely, all of us married, perfectly made to compliment you. The Hebrew text itself, chapter one, verse one, is seven Hebrew words. Listen, there's no accidents. It's amazing all the sevens that run through the front end of this. But it's seven Hebrew words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And with seven words, God deals the death blow to atheism, the belief that there's no God, to agnosticism, the belief that God can't be known, to pantheism, the belief that the universe and God are all one substance, to naturalism, the belief that the universe is solely the product of natural laws, to polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, to materialism, the belief that matter is all that exists and has always existed, to fatalism, the belief that there's no divine plan to creation and history, to secularism, the belief that God and faith have no place in human endeavors, and to humanism, the belief that humans are the masters of the universe. Seven words. Gone. Again, because it's a summary, I'm only going to make this one statement about God in chapters one and two. Creation, it's this. God is in control. And we're going to hold on to that all the way through. But God is in control. Lest we think, well, there's other things. Well, we know there's other things here. But lest we doubt that, consider the text itself. It repeats. God said, God saw, God separated, God called, God said, God made, God called, God said, God called, God saw, God said, God said, God made, God placed, God saw, God said, God created, God blessed, God... can't breathe. God said, God did, God made, God called... God, you see, is in control. There's three things we can pull from this text about humanity, man and woman. First is this, we are made in the image of God. If you want to connect a word to that, connect to the word value. No other creature, no other animal, listen, nothing on the planet, only human beings made in the image of God. That means value. Second thing we can note is that we're made for God's purposes. We weren't just made willy-nilly. We are made to co-reign with God over creation. If you put a word with that, you might put the word significance. You talk about doing something that matters. We're made to co-reign with God. 
The third thing we can say about humanity is this. We are made for relationship with God and with each other. The word I put on that is belonging. So value, significance, and belonging. I don't, I don't want us to miss this because value, significance, and belonging, when, when, when we understand biblically how we get that, that is our greatest satisfaction and fulfillment. Here's what I mean by that. Notice Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, value, significance, and belonging are not things that we achieve. They are things we receive. We receive it because God gives it. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. So, so important to understand this because of what happens next. Creation, what's the next word? Fall. Look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will, like, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Mm. Man, you know, when we went through this before, we spent, you know, we spent three or four weeks just in, the, in those verses. So there's a lot in this chapter. But at the core, when they reached for the bite of fruit, I want you to know it's not just a bite of fruit. It is an act of outright rebellion. Now, why do I say that? Because God had created the earth, the world, and so created humanity and put them in that place that if they would trust him, if they would trust him to provide value, significance, and belonging, they would have it in the way it's such that they were made for their greatest satisfaction. Trust me to provide for that. And what did they do? Don't, we don't want to sugarcoat that. They said... I think there's a better way. I think I'll do it my way. In other words, that's why I say it was a rebellion. It was a rejection of God to say, I'll make my own provision. And every human being born from Adam and Eve on have that genetic makeup. You know how you get your genetic testing done now? You can get your genetic testing done. It'll be there. The selfish gene, it's there. I'll make my own way. I'll make my own provision. Every person on the planet carries it. They don't die immediately, do they? Well, they die spiritually. They're separated from God, you see. 
I'll tell you this separation is made very visceral in chapter 3, verse 24. Look there. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, it's an angel, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. From Genesis 3 onward, humanity has been trying to get back to the tree of life. And you go, Lord, I don't, get, I don't think people are trying to get to the tree of life today. Think of it in these terms. Every person is trying to find value, significance, belonging, because we were made for it. Now, here's the thing. Because of the fall, we all look for it in the wrong places, right? But that doesn't deny Ecclesiastes, eternity set in our heart. We long for it. Every person's longing for it. The Bible says, you know what? The way to the tree of life, it's not, it's not in that garden. It's forward to another garden. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. All of us are wired to make our own provision rather than trusting God to provide. Now, I don't want us to miss something in the fall that God does that reminds us of something about him most important. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Notice in the midst of the curse, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, strife, and between your seed and her seed. He is a male child. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. God makes a promise. Don't miss this. Right in the midst of this, God says, I'm going to make a promise. The promise is there's going to be a male child born of a woman who's going to deal the death blow to the serpent, and the process is going to be harmed himself. And of course, our minds, when we hear that, we race ahead to the cross, but we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves yet. In creation, I want you to, 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 to know this, and I, I, I almost failed to mention this last uh, service. But in creation, what did we say about God? God is in control, right? The fall happens. God makes a promise. It's easy for us to go, well, he was a little out of control right there. It's easy for us to go, plan B. God's got to scramble. What's he going to do? Okay, he's going to do this. Don't go there. As we always say, there's no plan B in the mind of God. When we say God's in control, men and women, we do understand that's always in control. That for God to be out of control for a millisecond would make him less than God. He's, all, he's always in control. The fall did not catch him by surprise like, darn it, I didn't think they were... No, 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 this is our God who Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the world, he <laughs> called a people to himself. So you see this. When we say God's in control, you don't give an inch of ground on that or he is less than God. In a way that I can't explain, now this is like, I'm taking a real deep dive right here, so everybody take a deep breath. 
We're going down in a way that I can't explain. God's glory is more fully revealed and man's good is more fully given in a creation that fell than in a creation that didn't go through the fall. I'm just telling you, I, I can't hold that in my head, but I can't deny it from the scripture. This is all plan A for the glory of God. Well, chapters four, five, and six, they just describe the effects of the fall. It's terrible. And chapter five, if you read it, the word that will jump out at you is, and he died, and he died, and he died. Now, granted, the guy lives almost a thousand years, but in the end, right, and he died, and he died, and he died. The flood waters, um, I'm sorry, and they die, the effects of the fall, they die. Up until a point when God makes an analysis of creation hit by the fall. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 9, 5 through 9. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm not going to read it all because we know the story. God judges the earth. He destroys the earth by a flood. Look at 723. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. He judges the world with the flood waters. I do want to make this point. Notice Man separated from God does not evolve to bigger, greater, and better man. Man separated from God devolves to deeper and darker places of wickedness. This is the testimony of the scripture. And therefore God judges the waters rise, the waters subside, and in chapter 9, God makes another promise. He will not destroy the earth by water ever again. And he puts a rainbow in the sky. Of course, Noah and his three sons and their wives come out and repopulate the earth. I'm going to say more about Noah in a moment. Um, but what we notice as we're just moving through this, Noah and his family and the animals aren't the only thing that came off the ark. I want you to notice this in chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Noah comes off the ark. They plant, he plants a vineyard. He gets drunk, and something terrible happens, and it's not a good thing. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know why it happened. Look at 9, 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, this is a, he got drunk, and something happened with his sons. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, key word, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. And then look at verse 29. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Two, two three words with the phrase. Cursed, and he died. What came off the ark was, 
while the earth was cleansed, what came off the ark were not cleansed hearts, were they? Because post-flood, earth is washed clean, but humanity cursed and still dying. It would take something more than washing the whole earth to cleanse the heart of man. And of course, where do our minds go? Hmm. To some blood that would cleanse us. But we don't want to get too far ahead. It's amazing as we get to the New Testament, this flood story plays out and Peter himself describes these flood waters as the judgment of God. God judged, the, flood, the waters were the waters of judgment and the only, only people who survived the judgment were those who were in the ark with Noah, which foreshadows the judgment of God on sin falls and only those who are hidden in the ark, the sun, survive those waters of judgment. And why do I keep saying this? Because y'all, it's the way we, we, it's the way we read our Bible. It's pointing towards Christ. Genesis 10 records Noah's descendants, every one of them a sinner, and every one of them are sinners as confirmed by the fourth event. And again, we're going to go creation, you don't have to do it, creation, fall, flood, but what's the last one? Say it. Babel, Babel, Babel. and it's Babel because of the languages, but it's also Babel out because it's the dispersion of the nations. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words that came about as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The key phrase in that section is verse 4. It's found in there. Let us make for ourselves a name. Now, listen, if we know anything just by our cursory reading of Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us God did not create the world and put humanity on it so that we could make a name for ourselves. I mean, we just know that's not, that's not the original creation. That's not the intent of God. And after the fall, what are men and women going to do? I'm going to make my own provision. I'm going to make a name for myself. They build this tower to, to God. We're going to reach to the heavens. We're going to reach God. And of course, there's a bit of humor in the Hebrew even here where it says, and then God had to what? What did God have to do to see their tower that's so tall? I mean, it's amazingly tall. God had to come where? Down. I got to go all the way down there to see what you guys are doing. Looks like an anthill. Just a reminder that their efforts to go there are minuscule. Well, God disperses them. He gives them different languages. This is the birth of nations, you guys, probably ethnicity. And even when, you, even when we read about Babel, though, again, I want you to think for a minute. I hope this hits you in some way. Oh, these, these different tongues and everything. Makes me, kind of makes you think of a, of a future day when 
when there are going to be all these people gathered in Jerusalem, they all speak different languages and tongues, and, 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 the, and there are going to be these tongues spoken, but it's going to be one message, and all those different languages are going to go, well, that's, I hear it in my tongue, it's one, and they become nations, one family, right? We, we, we see the reverse of Babel, where? At Pentecost. Well, creation, fall, flood, Babel, four events, Genesis 1 through 11, and one principle, one principle. Look at Genesis 3.20. We're gonna flip back and go through it real quickly one more time. Genesis 3.20. What's the principle? Well, the principle's faith. You know, no surprises. It's the guiding principle of life with God, faith. It's, it's, It's rather opaque, Early on, this is, this is how God reveals himself. You see, in, in, from, from creation to consummation, it's progressively revealed. It's not very clear. Then it gets clearer, 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 and all of a sudden, it's Jesus. Oh, my gosh, it's Jesus. Well, that's progressive revelation, faith itself here. We see glimmers of it, and then it's going to find, I'm going to make this comment, it's going to find probably its clearest and fullest explanation and description in the life of Abraham. That we get faith. But it's, it's, it's foggy at first. Genesis 3.20. Notice what Adam does. This is post-fall. God says, you know, death is going to now reign. But Adam does something. Now the man called his wife's name Eve. He renamed his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means living. I don't know. We don't know how, but Adam had the faith, you see, because she hadn't had any kids, had the faith to believe God's promise was true that he would send someone born of a woman and that meant Eve would have kids even though they don't have any kids and even though death reigns, he renamed her living. Adam expressed faith. Look at 426, 426 to Seth, to him also a son was born. These, this is uh, Seth, is one of Noah's sons. And he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the first mention of worship, true worship, the people worshiping God. We don't know how, but they at some measure were expressing faith in order to worship God. Noah, of course, is the big example. Noah, Hebrews 11 makes absolutely clear, Noah built the ark by what? Say it. By faith. He built it by faith. You know, there was no rain. Build the ark. What's water coming from the sky? What's flood? We don't have that. He, he built it by faith. He entered the ark by faith. I haven't thought of this till I was rereading this week all of chapters 1 through 11. And you, you guys probably have seen this, you know, but, but it just kind of struck me. If, if you were on that ark, if you were on that ark, and, um, you know, after the floodwater subsided, God put the rainbow in the sky. Remember, you know, we're just flying through this. But he put the rainbow in the sky and said, look, I'll never do this again. I'll never be flooded by water. Okay, so if you were on that ark and you had just gone through the cataclysmic flood, I mean, the flood that we can't even comprehend. I mean, the movie can't even do justice to it, that, that it destroyed all of humanity and the earth. And uh, you, the, the ark's now on dry land. It's on dry land. And God says, okay, now I want you to go out and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. You know, leave the ark, go down here and go to these places and plant, you know, and grow crops and animals, livestock, all that. The first time it started to rain, what would you do? I'd be going, to the ark, to the ark, you know. You, you wouldn't want to leave the ark. God put the rainbow there 
to say, man, when that rain starts hitting, and I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but honestly, that, that the raindrops could probably trigger what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, it could trigger, last time it rained, this happened. No. God said, look at the sky and look at the rainbow. And you see, not only did they build the ark, not only did they go in the ark, they left the ark by faith, believing the promise of God. If we didn't know any more than what we know, Genesis 1 through 11, you and I would be wise to go, okay, God, you know, there's the, the fall, humanity's, it's gone to pot. How, how's God going to reverse this curse? We would be very wise to say, well, it seems that the way God works is he makes promises. And then he makes a promise to people. And those people actually live their life based on the promise God made. And in this way, God's purposes move forward in time to their fulfillment and completion. God makes promises. People believe the promise and people act on the promise. You know what we call that? Faith. Faith. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verse 20. I want you to see this one last thing. Romans 4, verse 20. So much we could say about Noah and, or uh, Abraham and his faith. And I'm not going to read the whole section here. This is where Abraham has promised a son. And I want you to note what Paul says of Abraham. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. What a great definition of faith. <clears throat> Believing or being fully assured what God promises, God will do. Faith is, it, 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 there's more in this, but it's never, never less than believing God keeps his promises. When they stood, the original audience stood at the edge of the Jordan. We've got to cross that thing. Those are giants. How are we going to do that? God gave them a promise. Would they believe God keeps his promise and act on it? And that's the core, that's the heart of faith. There's no one in the room, I said this earlier, who's not facing something right now. It's in your mind. It comes to your mind immediately. The challenges of life. How's God gonna work that out? I don't know why God did that. What's he gonna do? How's that gonna, how's that gonna happen? How's he gonna use that for good? You know, there's none of us that don't sit with those things. And we stand on the edge of the Jordan and the invitation is, God promised, well, I Will I trust it by faith? We're going to watch Abraham. And oh my, we're going to learn. What is this thing called biblical faith? How do I live it in my life? Now, I know we all need it. So I'm going to end in a way we've moved through this service. And that is in prayer. And I'm going to invite you to close your eyes just for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to pray for faith. We're going to ask God for faith to believe.
But I'm going to ask you to not ask for it for yourself, but for the people around you. And you may go, well, I don't know the people around me. Well, they don't know you. But what we know about each other is we all need to walk in faith. And it's not easy. And so you can pray with absolute integrity for those around you that God might grant to them the insight and the courage to trust him in faith. Would you do that for a moment and then I'll close this. Father, there's not a one of us who sit here today who do not need for your spirit to deepen our faith, to help us believe, and to believe to the degree that we would trust and act. And what we have sung today, that you are a promise keeper, would mark our lives of people who know God keeps his promises even as you demonstrated in Genesis 1 through 11 and you demonstrate from Genesis to Revelation and you'll demonstrate it in the life of Abram God we want it to be true and trust it will be true for us as we walk by faith. And we need your help. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand. I will send you out with uh, Paul's words. Having just been there, a great reminder to you and I of our hope and our hopes connected to God being a God who keeps his promises. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless.